Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my conversation with clinical psychologist Christine Runyon. She sheds light on the psychic and physiological and spiritual effects of a year of pandemic and social isolation. What's been happening in our nervous systems? This is the complete unedited version. There is, as always, a shorter produced version wherever you found this podcast. I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you. Let me. Why don't I tell you the story of like how this came about? Um, this um, before, just as we start. Great. Uh, um, yeah. So, so um, I uh, had been having the experience, which you know, every time you talk to people now about this experience, they're having some version of it, but just mm-hmm. noticing. This dislocation and disembodied, confused, general feeling. Um, this feeling like my memory was disrupted. I'm not thinking clearly. Um, my, you know, my days. I, 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 I kind of will suddenly fall into this really dark emotional place which almost feels like depression, which I've experienced. So it's scary to me, right, to mm-hmm. feel like you're in that. But then, but then, but then, and this will happen in the course of many days, but then I'll kind of just as suddenly kind of emerge from it. And, um, and you know, just, again, sort of feeling all of the strange effects. Or, no, not all of them. There are so many of them. But this... Um, the strangeness of what feels like is happening in my mind and my body. Here we are a year after pandemic um, and in, in lockdown. And, and I got into this place of um, real despair about this about a month mm-hmm. ago. And, um, but it felt like there was something going on that was far beyond. There was, there was something going on in the way I was functioning that was even beyond what was understandable in terms of the sadness, sadness, the understandable sadness and despair, right, of everything that's happened and everything that's going on. Um, And I just felt like of all the ways we're talking about COVID, we're talking about the pandemic, and even talking about the lockdown, we're not talking about this, what's happening internally in Mm -hmm. each of us. And it's happening, it's like it's a a universal thing, it's happening to everybody you know, and yet we all have our own special ways. (laughs) Of it manifesting, <laughs> and you know, you one's aware of it in a workplace and in a family, and um, and then kind of in the world at large. Um, so I just started frantically searching online for somebody to kind of be speaking to this thing that, as even as I'm talking to you now, I don't know how to name it. And I and I found you talking mm. about how <laughs> this is a full-on assault on our nervous systems, Mm -hmm. that it's disrupting our mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. And somehow that was language that made sense to me. And, you know, somewhere you say, um, and so I've I've now spent a lot of time kind of finding you speaking and writing all over the place, but, you know, one one place I found you talking about how naming 
um, using words and naming things actually can have an effect of quieting the primitive part of our nervous system Mm -hmm. when what we're doing Mm -hmm. is reacting to fear. Mm -hmm. And I felt like what the way you were talking about this, um, often to other, often to physicians, um, um, was even though what you're describing is it is itself unsettling about what's happening inside our bodies and brains. There's something about giving words to it that that had that calming effect on me, um, and so I wanted. I said, I want to have. I want to have this conversation on air, um, and so here we are. And I'm just really grateful to have found you and um, and to have a chance to draw you out right now. So. Well, equally grateful to be here, and you've just um, you've just summarized, I think, really what has been one of my primary messages through this. And I can I can tell you if you're interested how I came to understand it in that in that way. Yeah, um, please do. Okay, I, I I will start there. So um, I guess to Hang start on. there, I tell me. Yeah. Well, what were you going to go on? Go on. I was going to say I, I want to. I want to know a little bit about you, but maybe you yeah. can tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I think to start there, I have to <laughs> yeah. really say kind of what I, who I am and what I yeah. do. Yeah. So I'm a clinical health psychologist and have been for over 20 years and have always worked at this intersection of body, heart, and mind. And my career has really been probably two primary um, threads really weave through the entire tapestry of my career. And that's... Um, bringing more of the mind and the heart into mainstream allopathic medicine. And the second really is about access to care and access to mental health care, destigmatizing that. Yeah. And the hats that I, um, that I wear now, the roles that I play, I'm the um, house officer psychologist at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And house officer is sort of a, an old school name given to medical trainees. So any medical or resident um, our fellow in the institution can see me for psychological services. Hmm. It's one of the roles that I play. And I'm also a mindfulness teacher at the Center for Mindfulness. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then my newest adventure um, is the start of a, a business, really, that came about during this pandemic related to this very topic with my dear friend and colleague, Joan Fleischman. And that's really. the tend. Tend health. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that okay. at some point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the way that this that I that I understood it in this way was really in my role as the house officer psychologist. And in March and in April, I began getting um, emails and calls from patients who I hadn't probably seen in a while. Some new patients, and the the common experience for them, and this is before we hit our surge, we did have quite a surge in central Massachusetts with Mm -hmm. COVID, but this was before that, was the activation of prior trauma. So these were all people who previously had traumatic experiences, some of which I knew about, some of which I didn't. And began um, really at a fairly alarming rate, reaching out and seeking care and were having trouble what was go- understanding what was going on with them, even as this had not descended upon us, was starting right. to descend in New York City. And, and then secondly, really in my own home. And um, my daughter, who has her own story to tell, if and when she ever chooses to, um, because of that same phenomenon, really had a massive overcorrection in control, mm-hmm. in trying to control what she could. And for her, mm-hmm. that manifested with food 
And so it was those two things that really caught my attention to understand what was happening was about threat mm-hmm. and uncertainty. And because people who have had prior trauma, their system is actually highly sensitized. And so it's like their threat detection can go off sometimes um, sometimes unnecessarily <laughs> and sometimes, but at a, at a lower threshold. Mm-hmm. And so before a lot of us were really experiencing it, I was, I noticed it there. And that's what really got me thinking about, oh, this is, this is dysregulation at the nervous system. And then the tsunami, you know, hit. And I think yeah. that's so much of how I understand a lot of what you're describing. Um, a lot of what I hear all the time in, in my patients, in my friends, in myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, I want to just very briefly just 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 know a little bit more about you kind of the kind of the background of your life like sure. I mean I, I um where, where did you grow up I, don't I grew up in Ellicott City Maryland okay and I'm just I'm curious um just before we dive into this because um, this is always a curiosity of mine is there you know when you think about these things that you care about and that have come to be the questions you pursue in your work um even about you know the nervous system and mm-hmm. kind of the complexity of us, um, the the multifaceted nature of the human system and organism. Um, are are there is there some place you trace the roots of that fascination um, in your life in your earliest life? So, two things come to mind with that question. Um, one is I um, I know you're often often interested in people's kind of spiritual. Uh, religious paths. And yeah. so that's actually one of the places I think that how it showed up for me. But mm-hmm. um, my I grew up uh, Catholic. My dad was pretty devout Catholic. Actually, he was in seminary until he was about 18 and decided ah. not to pursue the priesthood. And my mom converted to Catholicism uh, for their marriage back in the late 60s. And that was always a point of contention, actually, in my house. And so my sister and I um, grew up with uh, my dad as our kind of religious model and grew up CCD and confirmation and all of that. And I I knew that that was not the right messaging for me. But the thing that stuck, stuck with me was service. Mm-hmm. And it being a platform for service and going with him for various adventures through the church. So that really stuck with me as something that I knew I wanted to be a part of my life. And I actually thought I wanted to be a physician. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, hence the fascination with <laughs> Dr. Carson and yeah. uh, that I aforementioned. Yeah, fascination <laughs> there. So I thought that's what I wanted to be. And uh And then, but I was always reading this um, part of the JAMA, which is the Journal of American Medical Association, and I would flip to the back, and there was a column called A Piece of My Mind, Mm. and it was the narrative. I've read that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read those before. Yeah. And so that is actually uh-huh. what I always went to was the narrative. Uh-huh. And so it was this, that, again, that intersection of 
people in, in mainstream allopathic medicine who were speaking to the human experience. And right. so that's really part of why when I found clinical psychology and I specifically found health psychology, I thought, oh, now this is a place I can marry these interests and be of service. But you actually started your career as a psychologist in the U.S. Air Force. I did, yes. How did that happen? I did. So I actually come from a family of a lot of civil servants. My dad was worked in the uh, intelligence community, CIA and NSA. And I have a lot of West Pointers, actually, on my mom's okay. side. Um, and my grandfather commissioned me. Um, he was already suffering from Alzheimer's at that time, so I think we I think we pledged something close to allegiance to the Constitution. May have had a little variation in there, but he commissioned me uh, in the Air Force, and um, and so I, that's how I, that is how I started my career, and actually my career with um, integrated care, which is bringing psychology, bringing behavioral health into the primary care setting which is where most people access their care, the emergency room or primary care. And so really making psychology and mental health um, at the forefront of that instead of as this uh, specialized, very difficult to access and stigmatized um, part of our health care. I mean, it also occurs to me that, that working in that sphere, both the... Um the, the the call to service, which is in the military, as it in as it is in in healthcare, mm-hmm. um, but also the backdrop of trauma that is involved in yes in that profession, um, I can also see how that flowed into you into into to kind of the, the the broad perspective and the kinds of things that you were paying attention to that that lead to the perspective you have on the you know if you know almost mm-hmm. kind of the species level trauma that we're experiencing right now. Yes. And I I think well said, I think it is a species level and we trick ourselves uh, as smart as we are, as creative as we are uh, and innovative in terms of technology that beneath all of this, there is something that's so primitive and inescapable. And as much as we try to, I actually, I actually think that's one of the things this pandemic has shown us is as much as we have tried to create so much connection, I, I'm using air quotes, connection yeah. through <laughs> through yeah. social media, we actually see how how in- insufficient that is. Yeah. You know, this pandemic of, of isolation and loneliness and lack of connection, how insufficient it is because of who we are beneath the skin, because of who we are at this level of our nervous system that those those innovations can't tap or they try to tap they try to manipulate quite perniciously actually yeah. <laughs> our dopaminergic system yeah. and and rewards and those things but they can't tap really i think into our heart centers and you know um so much we're speaking in february 2021 and so much has happened, um, both in the world and in our society and in individual lives and communities, um, in this almost a year since, um, at least in the U.S., I mean, more than a year if you, if you look globally, that, mm-hmm. that COVID began. But what, I, what I'd love to just kind of have you open up for us to start is, you know— <laughs> All of that aside, what's happened um, 
just the nervous system effect that this virus in the world, you know, kind of the baseline with which we entered into mm-hmm. all the things that then later happened. And I just want to, you know, point back to something you said a minute ago. Um, that again, I read you when I when I started reading you, and this this made so much sense. And you said, you know, the mind body connection is sensitive to as much to what is un- imagined as to what is real. We're having mm-hmm. emotional reactions all the time to what is imagined. And that uncertainty itself is an incredible stressor. Yeah. And that just beginning with kind of the the news of this virus in the world, you know, an invisible threat, and yet um, just this, I mean, a life and death threat. Um, what started to happen in our bodies? Yeah. So you you stop me if I'm kind of getting too uh, I'm geeking out too much I on know, the neuroscience. I, I, I found it really. I've been geeking out in what you've been. I've been I've been reading, looking looking at your PowerPoint presentations to physicians, <laughs> okay. and I think it's fascinating. So just go, and I'll yeah. tell you if we okay. go. Okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, yeah. So so in our um, in our bodies, you know, we have this autonomic nervous system, and most people understand. Our, what we call often our fight-flight system, which is part of the autonomic system, which is, in fact, automatic. And it's our sympathetic nervous system. And it actually has more than those components. It has fight-flight-freeze. And I think that's relevant to mm-hmm. a lot of what we're seeing now as well. And so when our our system, which is which is not happening at the level of our conscious awareness, threat is always detected by the nervous system. It can additionally be detected by our thinking brain, but it's always first detected at the level of our nervous system. And it's exquisitely designed. It is a, it is a beautiful evolutionary adaptation that if we were to ever lose it, we would, <laughs> we would become extinct. So it's, its job is to keep us safe and to keep us alive. And so it's really sensitive. And when it detects threat... It activates a series of responses and this cascade of neurotransmitters and hormones go off inside of our body to prepare us, to prepare us to fight or flight if we estimate the threat not to be, to be bigger than we can manage. Um, and that's a very predictable response. It's our source code as humans. You mm-hmm. have it. I have it. Every, everybody, uh, every one of your listeners has it. And, and when that goes off, it does a number of things. It um, releases glucose, so we have some energy. It increases our heart rate. It increases our blood pressure. It diverts blood to our major muscle groups. It temporarily gives our immune system a little boost. Um, and hmm. it stops our digestion. <laughs> it, it does all these things specifically. You can see how that it increases our clotting factor so that we can fight or that we can flight and that we have all the reserve necessary to be able to do that. And then our parasympathetic nervous system, which is often called our rest and digest or relaxation system, is, is also... Uh, innate within us. And when, when the threat subsides or when our thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex, sends a message that, okay, the threat, we've absolved the threat or the threat isn't here, we've just imagined the threat, right. um, the parasympathetic nervous system can then sort of calm things down and bring things back to baseline. And that's really where um, 
you know, when we are our most integrated and creative and aligned with ourselves and we have present moment awareness, that is, that is our natural kind of homeostasis of our nervous system. Kind of the, the balanced state. The balance. When, when, when we're more, or when you we're most balanced, when we're most whole, when we're as closest we get to whole, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people will call that kind of our optimal zone of arousal, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. um, and this kind of window of tolerance, which does get quite disrupted. For example, for people who've had prior trauma, that window really shrinks, and mm-hmm. so you can activate this nervous system at lower levels, and that that's one of the things that I think. Um, has been happening throughout this whole year for various for various reasons, both related to the virus and related to our social circumstances in this country. So yeah, one of, yeah, one of the um, one of the things I've been thinking about and just talking to friends and colleagues about is how. Um, I mean, obviously, just even as you describe that very clinically, it's clear that that here we are a year on and we never got to, the threat never went away, right? Yes. So, right, so yes. there's, and, but what I've also experienced as I look back on the year and its many chapters, including, um, you know, um, the death of George Floyd, like the the racial reckoning and rupture, the, the drama of the election, um, it feels to me, it even feels to me like, you know, in our work, in my work, my, my my colleagues and I, like there there was there was a lot of adrenaline that got mm-hmm. generated at at different points in the last year because of things that were happening in the world, and and that's just quite a part again from people having incredible losses and stresses and in, in their lives and right losing yeah. people and illness and jobs and all of that, but just there was there there's there's been. Um, yeah, I feel I feel like there was there were a lot of times when when we got adrenalized and you you kept going. There was there was mm-hmm. kind of this energy source. Um and then it 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 has felt like, you know, winter set in, the election was over, um and then it's just been this total it's like I feel like all of the energy flowed out of my body, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's been yeah. really hard to feel even kind of. I, it's it's also it's just I've, it's not just that I have felt low in energy. I felt disembodied and like yeah. I'll never be the same again. And and I talk to other people who feel that way too. I think that's also part of this, the nervous system, uh, both assault and response. You know, Mm -hmm. we have, we talk about fight or flight, but there's also a state of freeze and which can look very much like you're describing, you know, this state of, um, of apathy, of detachment, of, um, yeah, even disembodied or dissociative Mm -hmm. and numbing, a lot of numbing and, And that is a state of physiological high arousal, actually. There's still a lot happening underneath the skin in terms of the arousal, but the body has essentially tucked in. And it's a protective stance. You know, there's a lot of protection there. And, you know, you mentioned depression and anybody who is at risk of depression as previous depression, it's, it can be a scary place to be because it has so many... Um, there's so much residue there, you know, of like, oh, this seems familiar. I remember when. Yes. And that, yeah. 
Um, so it can be really scary because it's like, oh, is that coming back? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it actually can be, if we understand that as a natural variation within our nervous system, um, that may have a little protective factor as to not get into the rumination cycle where we're constantly monitoring. Mm-hmm. How is it now? <laughs> How mm-hmm. is it now? And is, it, mm-hmm. is this coming back? Is it coming back now? <laughs> yeah. Um, and to just know that that's actually a natural variation of our system too. And what is often protective in instances of such widespread trauma, if you will, has been um, has been taken from us in this pandemic, you know, connection. And it's that connection and community um, that doesn't ask, you know, what what sign do you have in your yard? Are you on my side? <laughs> right? Are you are you voting for the same person as me? Do your do your are your beliefs the same? When there's when there's a trauma like we've seen in Texas most recently, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. put those things aside and they come together and mm-hmm. they um, that's that's how we express this common humanity. This is how we heal. And so much of that has um, been taken from us during this time. We've had to do it in very different ways that our that our nervous systems don't interpret as much. Our nervous systems know touch. Um, they they know uh, closeness and a hug. Mm-hmm. And to not be able to do those things when people are really hurting has been a huge loss, and there's much grief there. Yeah. Someplace you said, our nervous system calms down when we feel tended to. Mm-hmm. But we are so physical, right? Like that, that we need that to have a, physi- a, f- a physiological sensory um, component. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's a part of our system that actually doesn't get nearly as much uh, airtime, and it's been labeled the tend and befriend system. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, You're it's right about an, that an affiliative part of our nervous system, actually, that yeah. was not in Hansele original work in the 50s, um, like most research at that time, right? It was primarily done with men. And yeah. so that, this, all, that our research on stress was, uh-huh. a gen, was generalized to women, but it was about men. It was yes. just not surprising, but fascinating. And yes. Yeah. And this tend and befriend response is mediated primarily by oxytocin, a little bit for dope of dopamine. And, you know, if you imagine sort of, again, if we think about this as an evolutionary component of us, women, um, in order to gender some survival capacity, they would tend to the offspring and they would befriend. They would gather, right, gather in groups. And that actually portrays some, um, some survival benefit because their ability to fight or to flight, which would mean leaving behind those less able, like offspring, um, was, not, was not really the first available response. So yeah. it's tend and befriend. And, and it's... You know, there's some good neuroscience now that sort of supports that there are some real, um, there is a release of those neurotransmitters. Oxytocin both um, is uh, released in the presence of that tending to, and it actually gets released for us to seek that if we're feeling really disconnected, lonely, um, uh, 
apart, our nervous system will release some oxytocin to help us go seek and find <laughs> that mm. connection. Um, and that's, that is part of why you see lower rates of um, PTSD, for example, with natural disasters as opposed to other kinds of uh, trauma seen in combat or interpersonal trauma because you have that built-in sort of healing blanket. Hmm. So let me just, because I, 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 I want to just make sure I get, so, so, so we have had this idea, we, we generalize about the amygdala and our most primitive, the primitive part of our brain, which is also the, the part of our brain that is immediately automatically activated when there's mm-hmm. a threat. And we've always, there is this generalization, I certainly grew up with it. And you're, I think I hear from you that this science is pretty new, like that we've said fight or flight, fight or flight. Yeah. But now we're saying another thing, another way to describe what happens for some people or some of us some of the time is freeze. But this, but you also use this language of affiliate, which I think is a is it is another synonym for the befriending, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. it's that women that m- m- women more often perhaps than men, although not only women, in a crisis in a in 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 threat, will actually their response is not fight or flight or freeze, but to reach out to others and form alliances. Yes, and, like do the opposite of social distancing, right? Yes, <laughs> right? yes. which is what the crisis is now. That 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 major line of. Of, um, or, I mean, there's so many crises, but that that is not available. It's not available. And that loss, we've seen it. You certainly saw it you know, throughout healthcare, which is a space I know well in terms yeah. of people dying alone and the pain of that for their caregivers. Um, but, but for all of us, that loss is, it's not just a conceptual loss. Like, it's a physiological loss. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, that is so much of my message is, if we can understand and appreciate what we are experiencing at that level, not, you know, whoever you are, whatever you are feeling, like, of course, (laughs) of course you are feeling that. Look at our current conditions and that it's, it's a normal response to incredibly unfamiliar, unusual, unpredictable, uncontrollable circumstances. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it feels to me like, um, like one of the, like a, a tragedy in our midst of the way all of this unfolded is that, um, that the, that we made an either, <laughs> that, that that because of the i think probably you could make an argument that like our entire societal nervous system was stressed and yes people went to different places right i mean one of the, you know you talk about also um symptoms of of this stress on our nervous system that i think i recognize in myself and we all recognize as being more impulsive moody mm-hmm. rigid in our thinking irritable mm-hmm. lashing out a frustration tolerance and you could almost see that play itself out in our political life <laughs> yes right and so if you think about how i've been thinking about how social isolation is it's what you do to break people in war right it's what you do to punish people in prison mm-hmm. and and Collectively, we were faced with this impossible choice, right? That the very thing that makes us human, which is 
our physical connection to other people um, was the cost of keeping each other safe, right? Yes. And all of that is terrible. Somewhere along the way, part of the dynamic was you're either on the side of the science, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Or you're or you're interested in killing people. And um, so somehow, I guess what I'm saying is like, this is an impossible, it's a tragedy. Um, but I feel like it stopped us from actually being really honest about the, the, the terrible effects of the social isolation. Yeah, um, it's beautifully, beautifully said. And I, I, I think it is not, not at all a coincidence, like, you, like you're saying, that the level of um, social distancing that we needed to do in order to have a societal cooperation to try to avoid further infection actually really galvanized this in-group, out-group, this othering. Um, And, you know, for, I will say for myself, fortunately, probably for a lot of your listeners, when you think about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, most of us sort of hum along at the top part of that of that pyramid, if you will, sort of the bases are physiological needs being met, kind of food and water, and then you move up to safety, and then you have love and belonging, and the, the top is, um, and then you have esteem, I think, and self-actualization. I think transcendence may be the, the newest addition um, to that, but most of us were kind of humming along at the top of that triangle, and all of a sudden we all entered into this same state of uncertainty and fear and are all really at that place of looking at safety and then love and belonging. And I think that mm. that need to belong really um, catapulted people to the extremes to figure out, am I, are you, are you in my group or are you of that other group? And I really appreciate the language that you use because it's so resonant to the language of a lot of the mainstream media that is so inflammatory, right? You're either on the side of science or the side of killing people. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, and the truth is we're all in, in, a, in a panic and in, yes. in, in fear and we're not we're in our bodies, right? Yes. We're in our nervous systems, as you say. Yes. So we are all activated. That nervous system dysregulation is the source of where all of these other um, behavioral manifestations are coming. And we're all patterned in different ways. And a lot of that, I'm a psychologist, so you know it's going to like draw back to childhood. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that has to do with what, what were the ways that we met stress as a kid how did we mm. learn mm. how to meet stress in a way to stay safe as a kid? And unexamined, those just continue to show up through our lives. Um, and so not everybody manifests in the exact same way because of that patterning in those histories, particularly if left unexamined. Um, but you're, you can certainly find plenty of people who are responding to that activation in a way that that meets, you know, aggression, rigidity in thinking, um, getting very myopic in a perspective and not having much cognitive flexibility to share anybody else's perspective or um, ideas. And so you have a massive loss of empathy. Right, right. Massive loss of empathy. So... So what do you so so I think like you know one of 
part of one one um, implication of that for me. Again, I feel like naming this is, feels relieving, mm-hmm. even though what we're naming is is a really just impossible and terrible situation we've all been placed in. Um, and um, so, what do we know about? What do you know about the effects on us as humans, as creatures, um, of of what we've called social distancing? But you know what that entails—the isolation of this, the lack yeah. of touch, the lack of seeing and being seen, right—in mm-hmm. a world of masks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think about this on multiple levels. Um, I had a patient one time who um, had pretty severe, very severe PTSD, and she described this skin hunger Mm. because she so desperately wanted to feel connected and knew that that was also a source of incredible activation for her. Mm. And... So that term comes up for me is sort of we all have, particularly people living alone. My mom is 80 and she's living alone and um, being very uh, vigilant and diligent about precautions. And I think about that for her, mm-hmm. um, This because our nervous systems know that. I mean, I know um, m- my inclination and in being with somebody who's suffering is to lean in and to to touch if that feels safe to them and to hug and the loss of that at scale um i think is really affecting (laughs) is affecting our nervous systems quite a bit um so this process of naming and allowing i think is the term that i would say Mm -hmm. Seeing it as a human response to the conditions that are rather than um, something wrong with me. So many of us humans are prone to, right, even ask that question, what's wrong with me? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, even how now we're all saying why I'm I'm so much less productive and like it feels problematic and we're not, and I do do it too, but it's not, it's not really reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. Not being at what you're saying, we're not compassionate to ourselves. Right. And I, I even, I even bristle a little bit at some of what I'm seeing in terms of trying to codify the effects of this. Uh, What is the effect of this social social isolation, sorry, (laughs) that we're experiencing? Because we are using um, measurement and terminology that we know, and that is familiar, like what are the rates of depression now? What are the right. rates of anxiety now? And I worry about that a little because I think it does two things. One, we're using that language because we have a way to, to measure that. Um, but it is such a medical lens. It's such a lens mm. of pathology. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it actually captures what I'm saying, which is this is a very normal, in fact, predictable human experience given the conditions that we have. (laughs) Right. Um, And when we start to say, well, it's, you know, 30% of people are now expressing depression and 30% of people are expressing anxiety. And so many, I saw some horrible statistic about how many, what percentage of American 
young people had contemplated suicide, yes. right? Those kinds yes. of statistics just become another trauma on top of everything yes. else. Yes, and, a, and a, some, something that says, oh, well, gosh, if it's 30%, that means 70% of people don't have it. What's, mm-hmm. what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that we pathologize it, that I worry will send a subtle message um, around lack of, res- lock, whatever, insert word, I'm not w- whatever enough, resilient enough, strong enough, smart enough, funny, whatever mm-hmm. our, our brains will do. And I actually think that the other thing that we are very likely to miss is this tsunami of medical conditions that have at their basis an ideological or exacerbation factor from our stress response. So anything that's, you know, any kind of chronic pain, cardiac disease, hypertension, um, inflammatory processes, rheumatological things, even cancer, Mm -hmm. right, that when you have a disruption of the nervous system for so long and you have this activation that is too intense for for many of us, um, it's going on for a long duration, you have some breakdown actually on the phys- physical side. Is this and, what you call allostatic load? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, our, yeah, so we have an allostasis is just that you you deliver a stress to the system and it, you know, buckles a little bit and then it absorbs the stress and it recovers and it gets stronger. That's, we all are very familiar with this because we go to the gym or we do whatever our exercise may be and we do it in a dose along with recovery, we get stronger. What we have now is something called allostatic load, which is, right, the the stressors just keep coming (laughs) with no, with no opportunity for recovery and our systems just literally break down. And the, the other thing that's likely to happen is we try to intuit solutions to make ourselves feel better yeah. in the short term that are often pretty effective in the short term, but cause downstream problems. And those kinds of numbing things, you know, are alcohol, drugs, um, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere, somewhere you even said like worrying that that even oh, yeah. worrying, and then I think that's a personality type too, and I fall into that sometimes. Like somehow that feels like you're controlling it. Like I'm gonna, totally. think, I am gonna, I am gonna bear down and think yes. this through. And if I yes. worry about it, the worst thing won't happen. That that's that you say that that's a that's one of these inclinations we have that is counterproductive, but feels so natural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, we 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 want to have control. I mean, that's why the uncertainty, the unpredictable yeah. nature of this is so hard for us physiologically. Is we, um, you know, and, and and as a mindfulness teacher and practitioner, I really work at this intersection too of um, metabolizing the reality that there is no control. <laughs> right. Right. That. Uh, and it's one thing to know that at an intellectual level. It's another thing to really embody that as our lived experience every day. And are, is it your understanding that metabolizing that, as I think you said, allowing that to be true, is that also, is that like the closest we can come to recovery right now? Or <laughs> is, is that, 
is that part of the of a more productive coping or a I think more it's, healthy coping? I think it's I think it's part of it. If I had to um, see, if I had to sort of categorize what I think are those um, strategies or elements, and I I really appreciate this conversation because sometimes I think some of the right quote unquote self care solutions that are out there are actually they can sound quite trivial or or trite, and I don't want to be dismissive of anybody's individual experience, mm-hmm. but when we can. Um, when we can package them through an understanding of this physiology, you know, when somebody says, oh, just take a deep breath, <laughs> mm. um, it's like working at that level. But I guess what I would say is, I think it has to, I think the self-awareness piece, even before the allowing, you know, we have to um, have some internal vision around what's really here for ourselves mm-hmm. and know that how it shows up for you is going to be different than how it shows up for me. How it shows up for you today is going to be different than how it may show up for you next week. So that awareness um, and the allowing, being curious, mm. if, we can, if we can be curious just what's going on inside of our own bodies. The, uh, the neurotransmitter of curiosity is dopamine. Mm. So if we can be curious, we can give ourselves uh, a little hit of dopamine and then compassion. If I had to say the one thing that probably um, supersedes all of those is compassion, including compassion for oneself. Um, um, is, do you... Um, yeah, I just, I just lost my thought. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> just completely, this never happened to me in the same way. It happens all the time now. Um, yeah. So you, um, t- let's, t- let's, t- I, I'd like to hear about, um, I, I hear what you're saying that, I, I think what you're saying, when you said a minute ago, like, just take a breath sounds mm-hmm. trite, mm-hmm. but that, but that you, for example, taking a breath from what you know scientifically about our bodies, that there's a way to talk about that, that that, that actually is is a strategy um, yes. that makes sense physiologically. So um, so what are what are some of those strategies? Yeah. Um, so one that you've kind of come to is the the naming it, which is that's part of the self-awareness, but that's also leveraging your thinking brain. Our, our nervous system is really activating, is, is acting at this very primitive level. Um, and in fact, when it goes off, it compromises our thinking brain. Right. <laughs> it, and so when we can name, oh, this is, this is anxiety, or this is, this is anxiety showing up as, what was that thought? <laughs> right? right. We can, when we can just name it and put it out there, it brings our thinking brain back online. And um, and we can begin to quiet our nervous system by leveraging our thinking brain um, as well. And so that, that's what happens when you, when you name something is that you, um, you send a message to, you can send a message to your nervous system like, oh, okay, I, I see what this is. I, I, I got you. It's okay. <laughs> right. It's Okay. 
you can, you know, it's, it, we're just having a conversation. It's, it's okay to lose your train of thought. I've probably done it seven times already. <laughs> just sort of glossed over it. Um, so that naming it is a really powerful strategy. Um, the breath, you know, uh, with a caveat that the breath is not neutral for everybody. And so I do want to be sensitive to that. And, and certainly as a mindfulness teacher last spring, um, you know, teaching and encouraging around the breath um, was precarious. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. what we've discovered about breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so a long, I mean, there's various techniques you can do with the breath. Um, but if you're going to do one thing, a long exhale, mm. um, because that is that part of our, um, that's part of our sympathetic nervous system, the sort of dorsal part of our sympathetic nervous system that activates our, um, our calming. So a long exhale, the inhale is sort of can have an activation part, a long exhale can, that alone can actually be quite calming. Although there's some other breath Mm. techniques that, Mm. um, that, that one can use as well. The other things that um, again, sound. If you don't understand this at the nervous system, they sound almost, um, I don't know, new agey or kind of foo foo, but scents. So mm-hmm. I always work now with a candle in my office. Um, and why is that? What does that do for us? So any of our senses, because that's really the information source of our nervous system, is through mm-hmm. our senses. Mm-hmm. And so you know, a, a, a scent that I like, that I enjoy, it bypasses that thinking brain and goes right to that part of my nervous system. And so I'm creating a space where my senses can, can intercept safety mm. and mm. pleasantness. Mm. And so that may be music for some people, background music, or you, you, we all know this experience of you hear a song and you're immediately taken back to someplace, yeah. some point in your life, right? Yeah. Some point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, not because you thought about that memory, it's like that memory spontaneously emerged. Yeah. You're an experience and you're in a suite of emotions. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so scent and sound. Uh, can be really um, pretty accessible tools to just send those messages of um, of comfort or safety, and then the the we can work with the body too, the body quite directly to send messages of safety and of calming to our nervous system. So our body's this incredibly rich textured source of data for Mm. us. Mm. Um, But we can also um, intentionally be in postures, be in ways that the nervous system senses safety. So a very simple one, um, and we could do it now together, is just putting your feet on the floor so that your legs are uncrossed, And your feet are fully making contact with the earth, maybe pressing down through the heel, pressing through the balls of the feet, feeling a little of that sensation coming up through the legs, and feeling yourself in your seat, 
being held. Yeah. How is that? I feel that. Yeah. So fight or flight has a, has a body posture, right? Of being on the toes, (laughs) you know, right? It's like, I gotta, I gotta move here somewhere towards or away from feet flat on the floor. Um, it's like, okay, I'm here. Hmm. It's okay to stay here. It's okay to be here. So we can work with the body directly in those ways to send messages of safety. Hmm. And then one of my common go-tos is around this affiliative stress response, tend and befriend, and particularly if I don't have people around me, is to just make contact with myself. You know, I put my hand on my heart, on my chest. Oh, you mean literally, kind of like... Literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so... I feel like when I think about the lack of touch in my life right now, mm-hmm. I feel like the closest I get to touching people is handing over a credit card, right? <laughs> so I really appreciate what you're saying. And and you're saying, as a, as a, from the science, yeah. that this is something that is truly, truly acting on us. Yeah. And that's when you said, you know, the brain doesn't, (laughs) this incredible brain we have, but it doesn't know much between imagination and real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I will sometimes, you know, say to people, like, um, I want you to imagine um, cutting open a lemon, a juicy lemon, and bringing that half of the lemon onto your tongue (laughs) and just let it rest there. And what do you notice? Hmm. You mean I've noticed the tart? <laughs> yeah. I've noticed the tart yeah. almost. I would pucker up from the pucker thought. Up. Uh, and maybe even a little saliva Yeah, in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I trust there's no lemon in your... <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not together. But no. <laughs> there's no lemon in your studio. Yeah. We can create a physiological response through our imagination, which is, you know, it's, it's a double edge. <laughs> it's a gift and a curse because that is worry. That is the, right. that is, right? <laughs> right. But you're saying we can also activate that to comfort ourselves if we take yes. it seriously enough. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know what I was going to say a minute ago when I when I lost my train of thought for the thousandth thousandth time in the last few months. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, and this is a good. I was going to say how how I appreciate um, the reverence you have for our bodies and our nervous systems, right? Mm-hmm. That that and to me that also feels helpful to remember that our bodies are t- they're doing their best to take care of us. Oh yeah. And it, and it, and it's and it's out of control. Um, but somehow even that example you just gave that we also have probably more power than we realize to to mm-hmm. to, to to reorient that and and tap into um, those same those same powers um, to help ourselves. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's both been a sort of professional um, pursuit, you know, but a deeply personal one as well, as many of these things are. I'm always, um, I'm learning all the time from my patients and 
Um, and so many of the things that I've come to in my professional life, I've come to reluctantly, (laughs) but importantly, and, you know, I, I've had a lifelong struggle with my own body and, uh, probably up until maybe about five years ago and, and this reference. Yeah. And now it is, it is just a wonder and a source of curiosity and I can appreciate it for all the ways it's working on my behalf, even when I meet it with frustration. Um, And I had hip surgery in December Hmm. and had a fair amount of, of, of pain, but it was fascinating to watch my own relationship with that because I, I knew that you know, I had the sense of, of course there's pain. You have a lot of inflammation. There's a lot of healing that has to happen. Of course it's pain. And I didn't get into that cycle of, well, why do you have so much pain? And why can't you do this? And right. all of that rumination that I think we do with our emotional selves. <laughs> a yeah. lot. Why do I feel so tired? Right. Why do I, you know? And right, that's what the, in, the, in the Buddhist teaching, that would be the second arrow stuff. Um, do you know the parable of the two arrows? I'll tell it. Yeah. So it's just, you know, if if you get hit with a single arrow, back in days of hunter-gatherer, you get hit with an arrow, um, that's unavoidable. That is some pain and suffering that's here. And yet what we often do is then we begin with our, our ruminations and our, the tyranny of the mind that will say, I can't believe, I, why, was I, why was I in this place at this time? I can't believe I got hit with that arrow. I'm going to miss dinner, and this is so terrible, and this hurts, and when, when will I be whole again, and all of those things. And that's the second arrow, right? The right, first arrow right. is unavoidable. The second right. arrow is, is all us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I was able to see this in December to say that, you know, there wasn't as much second arrow. Mm. Um, and how could I map that onto, right, one's um, emotional experience to say, okay, here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said you have children. You have, I you, do. Yeah. I have two, yeah. So I don't know if... Um, I don't know if this question I'm going to ask is in that category of let's summon the second arrow, because there's actually a lot of that. You know, I feel like it's Mm -hmm. also a function of the 24-7 news cycle. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of like we talk about what happened and then we spend (laughs) then we spend much more time to know what might happen next and what's the worst case scenario and like really a kind of a. Kind of a, a a media version of reading tea leaves or having a crystal ball. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I, I I don't want you to. So I I think um, and you mentioned a minute ago like all the statistics. Um. Um, and I think especially a lot of us are concerned about our children. I mean, my children mm-hmm. are young adults, and that's a little different from having kids who are school age. I mean, but it, it's. Uh, it's like you know how how are they going to come out of this and what is this doing to them and um, you know knowing I keep thinking about I don't know why but I keep thinking about if it, I, I keep thinking about my twenty year old self and how at sixty 
I mean, I really want this to end, and it's really terrible, and there have been really terrible, terrible days. But mm-hmm. but I know that my 20-year-old self, or even my 30-year-old self, and certainly younger than that, you just have this sense of ultimacy, ultimacy about everything, and you just don't know that. Like, I mean, feeling like I lose a year of my life in some ways at this age is very different from mm. from early, younger ages. And um, how... What do you know from from what you know about our bodies? Like, how is that shaping how you're thinking about the effect this is having on our kids, but also about you know how how they're going to live past this? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we are at this. Um, you know, it is this epoch of our of our time of our probably globally, but certainly in this country and personally. I think, you know, it is it is an epic epoch yeah. <laughs> of our time. And um, there's a couple of, yeah, uh, demographics that I think have been hit um, particularly hard or in the way that they were, that they are hit by this is particularly hard. And so my oldest, my son is 22. He's a senior in college yeah. and um, supposed to go on to graduate school. And he says, you know, if it's, I'm not sure I'm going to do that, if it's going to stay in this virtual, in this virtual space. And, you know, we can all, we always say, oh, kids are so resilient, which they are. I think all humans have uh, a massive amount of resiliency baked into them. And that's one of the reasons why when you hit these these bumps I want you know I want to save my kids like I think any parent does from any difficulties and challenges and yet you remove their possibility of growth you know of of building that resilience of that recovery so um so I think it's a time to really I mean this is this generation coming up can can make a choice really about whether to continue on this path, what what we're seeing related to technology and social media, and really, I think these sources of misinformation and different information, and how much that divides us. And I, I hope that they that that generation really kind of takes stock at this time to see what lessons are we willing to learn even if they're unpopular, even if they are non-capitalist, <laughs> what lessons are we will, willing to learn about our humanity that have just been displayed here for almost the last year? Mm-hmm. Because we've seen that, I think, I hope that we've seen that all of these massive efforts of trying to make everything digital and put everything that we can in an app um, and make all of our connection, you know, through these devices is so woefully insufficient and we see it and here it is. And so what will this generation do to restore, um, to restore that connection to humanity? It's not only how we heal, I think it's how we thrive. Mm-hmm. And might they heed this as, a, as an invitation to stop the um, very intentional and pernicious effects of some of these 
um, really large, powerful companies that are kind of playing on our on our on our minds. <laughs> they're, they're really exploiting a lot of the things that we now know through neuro, through neuroscience um, mm-hmm. and through kind of how our physiology works. That may not have been the answer you were <laughs> looking well, for, but I yeah. I just I, I I think about that a lot because I'm not a um, fan or. Um, connoisseur of a lot of the social media platforms because I have long seen, and actually as a psychologist, way before um, a lot of the newer ones, I saw so much Facebook-induced distress. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, I know that there are, you know, wonderful connections from that and, and high school um, loves reunited, and so I don't <laughs> dismiss it <laughs> well, all. There is that. <laughs> there is that. Well, well, there, well, well. There's also it's also the um, the the strange fact that I mean there has been this discovery in this time of that there was there were capacities in our technology that we weren't availing mm-hmm. ourselves of, right? And mm-hmm. like, I mean, Zoom is terrible, and it's also miraculous. Yes, and yet it needs to grow up too. Um, to 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 meet this capacity we've discovered. I mean, I've been thinking also that like social distancing, I mean, we, we've already been seeing for years how crazy social distancing, like how, how social distancing, like we've, we've been seeing through social media, um, what is lost when you can't look people mm-hmm. in the eyes, right? Mm-hmm. When you can't look people in the eyes and when you mm-hmm. don't, when you don't have that, when you don't have touch and you don't have sight, and now we're kind of experiencing that in, in the real world. I mean, I did want to ask you, this is a little bit more granular, but um, an experience I've been having, and it, it makes me worry about younger people too, because I know they're that much more dependent on, or more involved, engaged with the devices. But mm-hmm. I feel like because my phone and my computer have become my portal Mm-hmm. to reality, to everyone, including my own children. Um, I feel like the addictive quality of it is intensified, right? That it, it's, it's like an appendage, even in a way that it wasn't before. And I feel like the way I'm constantly turning to it is disrupting like my attention span that's already fragile from... Mm-hmm. From these nervous system effects that you're talking about, mm-hmm. is there science around that? Um, there, there is. I think what you're you're describing is what's being activated is that um, addiction pathway, if you will, sort of dopamine pathway. Is that uh, there is some the neuroscience that we have is it's fascinating to me because it's this explosion in the last twenty years. But as most science is in its way it is so largely decontextualized so it's you know the science Mm. the scientific experiments are done to really isolate cause and effect and to really isolate you know if somebody does this what happens to that neurotransmitter you know in a functional mri and it's completely decontextualized from what happens when you have competing things at the same time what happens when you have um you know, these sort of real life scenarios. And so when you put the context to it, but I think what you are, what you are individually experiencing can certainly be explained by neuroscience and the activation of that habit loop. Um, And that, 
it, you both, both is supported by a little hit of dopamine and then is additionally supported by the habit loop and sort of the fear of not having it there. So you have something that connects you to something so, so deeply meaningful to you, right? Mm-hmm. Your kids and you, you have this association of this device to your kids, <laughs> That association, right, is really strong. If that device was was not associated with something pleasurable, um, right, you'd have more of an aversive <laughs> response to it. And now it's all mixed together. <laughs> well, right. And the other thing is, it's I, yeah, I hear you saying that it's associated with things and people that are meaning and relationships yeah. um, and interactions that are meaningful to me. Yeah. But yeah. I also turn to these devices. Um, um, to like go down a rabbit hole about some celebrity's love life, right? Like I go down, I, like I, I turn to <laughs> or these some devices. bizarre psychologist somewhere and her her story about the nervous system, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I turn to it also um, in ways that are not good for me at all, and that have nothing to do with those meaningful associations. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, but just I think the thing about the disruption not being able to pay attention in the same way, which yeah. feels connected to the underlying problem of now. Yeah. Um, so in, when, we're, when, our, when we're in kind of an, an activated stance from our nervous system, some interesting thing happens, happens actually with our focus and our attention. One, it can get pretty myopic and, and singularly focused. Um, so we don't, have space for a lot of other things um, at a high level. And that's really adaptive, right? If you mm. have a particular threat, you want to be solely focused on looking, smelling, mm. sensing sensing that out. And so that can happen with a little bit of hyper-focus, if you will, which may be that rabbit hole <laughs> right. you're talking about. So, so the attentional um, partner to that activation is, is, is hyper-focus and a little bit hard to peel away from. Um, when we're activated, and this is why, when I think about what are the what are the superpowers that we all kind of hold in us, that is also part of our self, our source code, it's that self awareness, um, you know. And there's many occasion through this past year where um, you know Netflix has has judged me outright. Right? Are you still watching this? I don't know if you. <laughs> Watch Netflix long enough to get that message. It's actually or, written. Or when they say, are you sure you want to continue? Are yes, you sure you right. want to keep watching? <laughs> right. And I know there's no italicized letters in there, to, but, I, but I, I read the tone. I know mm-hmm. it's there. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, so it's, that, it's that, is there a pause point to be able to step out of that automatic pilot and then be able to make an intentional choice? Um, I, there's a, there's a quote that's attributed to Viktor Frankl and, um, he wrote Man's Search for Meeting, but I actually just reread that within the last month and the quote is not in there, but I think it's in one of his other books. And he Mm. says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And in our choice lies our growth and our freedom. Mm. And it's such a beautiful encapsulation, I think, of that self-awareness and that pause, which is so hard to do at this time 
because we're so activated. And so it's just recognizing when we can pause and, and say, oh, that's what that is. And I think having just been steeped in your world of thought and knowledge, you know, I understand that better, actually, the physiology mm. of that quote. I mean, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we haven't really, you've been talking about this, but we're, that, that there, that we all, I mean, we all, we talk about the amygdala and the fight or flight, right? That's all the most primitive parts of our brain, but that that's the part of our brain that is most natural and those connections are fast and mm-hmm. automatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've been learning from you is, and, and you know, of course I knew about our what, prefrontal cortex where we, the, the, the thing, thinking brain, right? What mm-hmm. do you, you call the primitive brain and the thinking brain? Um, that takes a little more effort. It is our superpower. But as you're saying, like, we have to take that space and make that choice. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really that power of the pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, it's imperfect. There's plenty of times where I have done that, paused, and then just went right back down the rabbit hole. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, but every so often, you know, every so often I'm, I'm able to, to catch myself and to make a very intentional choice to turn towards, closer towards my values, closer mm-hmm. towards, um, you know, what's, what's really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I I talk a little bit about TEND. Um, oh, yeah. Because you do primarily work with... Um, with healthcare providers, correct? I, I mean, that, that's I, your primary place. Yeah, I do. Which was born out of a pandemic. Hmm. Um, honestly, that uh, it was this point of realizing this tremendous need um, among healthcare professionals, not just sort of due to that surge. Um, we saw a lot of popular press about kind of who's caring for the doctors and yeah. what the doctors were under. But I, I was kind of working in this space um, before that. And then just had this um, overwhelming sensation that I needed to do something um, really specific in this area and uh, started this with my um, friend and colleague, Joan. I I just want to read something you wrote about this work. Um, um, You said, no amount of sophisticated technology can do what health professionals have done these past few months offered care with uncertain evidence, sat with the dying, comforted family members from afar, held one another in fear and grief, celebrated unexpected recoveries, and simply showed up. We have asked and expected clinicians to show up in ways they were never trained to do. No one has been trained in how to emotionally manage months of mass casualties. No one has been trained on how to keep showing up despite feeling feckless on the job. No one has been trained how to keep regular life afloat at home and anxiety at bay while working day after day with a little-known biohazard. Wow. And that's what they've done. Yeah. That's what they've done. And I want to stand in deep uh, gratitude and honor every one of them. And serve in the way that I can. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's powerful to have something you've 
yeah. written red back to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that was, I, 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 I'm a, I have a whiteboard. I have a giant whiteboard in my office and I, I, uh, thought one day I just drew three intersecting, kind of a Venn diagram, three intersecting circles and said, you know, one was, what am I good at? What do I enjoy? And the third was, what can I make money doing? <laughs> I have a mortgage <laughs> yeah. to pay and a car yeah. payment and a kid to send to school, mm-hmm. uh, two kids to send to school. And, uh, you know, and what I really enjoy is, um, is holding space for people, bearing witness and, and being of service. And, and because I know medicine, because that's where my career has been, I feel, um, uniquely not in not unique in only me but for me uniquely qualified to do this and it feels like the time to be doing this and that was the inception of tend health hmm. um i want to just run i want to just uh this is something i've thought about a lot this year and I'm just I'd love to discuss it with you I'd love to hear your reaction to it from from your whole career of working in the military and 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 now with doctors on what we say is the front line mm-hmm. <laughs> right we use military language um, just thinking about yeah. the trauma um, you know, again, I feel like these layers of trauma that we've been through that we just haven't paused to name and really mm-hmm. sit with and grieve and even like wonder about what they're doing to us. I mean, there's some things we wonder about what they're doing to us and others that we don't. And um, so it's it, so for me that there was this moment in, of um, seeing my daughter, my my twenty. Well, she's she's old. She's twenty six, but you mm-hmm. know, my twenty something daughter last summer for the first time in six months, she'd been working with children, so really quarantined, and mm. and I haven't seen her since, uh, which is hard. And um, and she it was in New York City, so you know, oh. they had gone through that, and she, and so she was wearing her very fancy mask that her employee had employer had given her, and. Even though we were sitting outside, she kept her mask on. And um, I, <laughs> you started crying, and now I feel like I'm sorry. And so <laughs> I, um, I was thinking the whole, I was kind of thinking the whole time, like I need to respect the fact that she's being really careful, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and then at some point, I realized at some point at the like at the end of this, I realized that she was being. She was keeping this mask on, even though really what I wanted to do was like hug her, you know, and see her mm-hmm. face. She was keeping her mask on because she was so scared of getting me, yeah. her elderly mother, sick. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't being cautious for herself. And and then I so I've thought about like what that is a trauma. Like we need to take in yeah. what it has meant this year. That we became a danger to each other mm-hmm. by virtue of our breath, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder how long it will take us to reorient to right, greeting one another with a handshake, mm-hmm. um, to welcome that, that touch 
and how long it will take for that to come back as a natural instinct. Um, that is a that is a trauma to to feel, um, and I'm sure there's probably correlates of this sort of in history with other infectious diseases, right? For people to feel like they could be a source of infection. Yeah. Um, and see, I mean, this is the threat. This is what I, when I, when I understand all of this, I can't help but understand it at the level of the nervous system precisely because of that. Our, our nervous system, it takes a lot of work for our brain to say, oh, but they have a negative COVID test or they haven't had this or they haven't, you know, just sort of walking around every, you know, to the grocery store or seeing somebody that you care about or to have this feeling. I mean, you know, my son coming home from college and his girlfriend coming and where have they been? And oh, what have yeah, they been doing, I've had that right? too. You were scared of your kids. <laughs> yes, but there's yeah. the, and so and, and but there's this subtle thing, or not so subtle, but different. That the uncertainty and the threat, yes, is about getting the virus, but also that we've all been walking around um, fearing being a danger to others. Yes, <sighs> yeah. yeah, and truthfully, I mean that happened a lot in healthcare settings, Mm. you know, Mm. that um, because of the incubation period, you know, people were able to transmit virus. We saw rates around um, employees just skyrocket more from infecting one another than being infected from patients. Yeah. And wow, that's another thing to consider about what our healthcare professionals have been carrying for us Mm -hmm. and carers have been carrying. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, we can, I mean, naming it is helpful, but um, those, you know, the messaging between those parts of our, our system, because there's always this active level of sensing that's happening outside of our awareness. And so we can say that, right, sitting on the bench with your daughter, but then as soon as you get up to go and walk to your car and may pass by, however many other other people, your nervous system is resensing that all over again. Right. So compassion is the, the I think, <laughs> compassion and for others and compassion for self, um, for all that we're, all that we're feeling, all that we're sensing, and in many ways, all that we're doing to try to get out from under what we're feeling, you know, that... Mm-hmm. Um, even if we're, right, assuming we're doing, we're not hurting other people, but other, what other kind of numbing behaviors or um, having compassion when we sna- when we're snappy with somebody and yeah, <laughs> or they're snappy with us, <laughs> yes, or they're snappy with yeah. us, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you said um, you were you were speaking or you were directing this comment to healthcare professionals but i when i read it i felt like it's worth all of us hearing that you said um as you witness suffering and its effects on you you said also this was kind of you were commending this also recognize the effects of witnessing resilience mm. mhm which feels like kind of a practice yeah yeah 
um, there's so much suffering right now. There's mm-hmm. so much suffering and, and there are these right incredible, um, acts of resilience. And I have felt, you know, outpourings of people that I've worked with through the years of spontaneously sending an email of gratitude of, of people digging deep and having gratitude practices and kindness practices <laughs> that, um, maybe, Maybe we're there before, but it, that it, it feels like there is a rebirth of that that I'm very hopeful for. You know, when we were speaking about, um, when you talked about just strategies and techniques, um, actually one that I had written down that I don't think we talked about was, was gratitude. Mm-hmm. But you also coupled it with this word savoring. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about, actually, again, from the, from the scientist in you, which is about in how, how we're, so, um, we're so oriented, we're so good at, skilled at looking out for what's wrong, yeah. um, both physiologically and also kind of culturally. But, but this savoring is like inclining the mind to mm-hmm. look moment to moment for what's going to release oxytocin in us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're such a good student. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's, we're, it's so easy to pass over how things, you know, oh, this is how it's supposed to be, you know, so we don't actually drop into um, the wonderment of whatever is here and to do that as much as we can through our sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And we do have to, we do have to incline the mind. And when we, when we know that that's not, um, sort of a personal failing or that, um, somehow we didn't get the update, you know, in our, (laughs) our particular, uh, neurobiology, like that that's true for all of us because of, um, needing to stay alive and needing to stay safe. And that's how our nervous system is wired. And so we actually have to put some efforting towards um, noticing that which is neutral or pleasant. In fact, you know, if we can really notice, most things that are even neutral become pleasant hmm. because they, are, they, be, they become fascinating. I have a little... Mm. Um, <laughs> I have a little stink bug um, in my office that sometimes I think they're different ones, but it'll come to visit and just kind of walk like walk across my desk. And uh, I try to hold most of the Buddhist precepts of non-harming. So, (laughs) Um, so I just like, you know, hang out and he's kind of does his thing. And uh, I don't know how I got on the stink bug. See, I'm losing my my train of thought here. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're talking about um, how even what's neutral can become oh, pleasant. like totally, like yeah. even could be unpleasant for some. Like what this right. bug is here on my computer, mm-hmm. and to just tune into it and be fascinated by it, it can become mm-hmm. right. That too can become something um, something pleasant. But we do have to um, create those conditions, and it's so worth it mm-hmm. if we do. If I ask you this question, this this huge question, um, this ancient human question, you know, what does it mean to be human? 
Um, I wonder how you would just start to answer that right now today. Um, and, and I'm curious about, you know, this, this subject we've been talking about and how you've been kind of tracing what the pandemic has disrupted and, and, and done to us and been teaching us um, or perhaps bringing about the essence of us into relief. Um, you know, maybe, maybe some of that flows into how you would start to think right now about what you've learned about what it means to be human. Oh, it's a big question. Yeah, um, it is. And there's only one word that comes to mind, to be honest. Love. That's the only thing that's bubbling up. <laughs> it's just, and I don't mean in a romantic love. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just mean to love, to, to give love, to be loved, to be vulnerable enough to do both of those, um, and to love even when it seems um, unwarranted or inconvenient. And that is really, that is very much of sort of where I am, kind of at the edge of my own, uh, my own practice of trying to do that into the places where it seems um, unwarranted, <laughs> with people where it seems unwarranted. Um, mm-hmm. But that's the only thing that comes to mind. And, and I think it's probably because of, in part because of what we're experiencing in this pandemic and um, a massive loss of being able to act in love in all the small ways that we can express love and connection with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's those things we never even thought about before. Like yes. The eye contact or it's so so many things we miss that we never even paid attention to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we will we will move into something different. Do you, I mean do you think how do you think about I don't know. I'm curious, like, what you know about the effect this has had on all of us physiologically. Like, um, somewhere you talked about, you used this language. I think it was clinical hopelessness. Mm. Um, and I don't want to end on clinical hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I guess I want to, like, like how do you know? How do you think about how we? How we work with that, move beyond that, um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we, you know, time only goes in one direction. And uh, we, of course we will, like as, as a species, really, right? As a species, as these biological creatures with, we are social creatures, our brain is a social organ, Um of course we will. And I think, unfortunately, we will with some um, not, you know, some non-trivial sequelae, uh, certainly in what we now codify as mental health difficulties. And I think in physical health difficulties, we're going to be seeing a lot of that. I hope that we see some um, real reverence around the things that 
we've lost and some real commitment to, again, like I said, sort of learning, you know, what lessons are we willing to learn? Um, And and individually, I think, you know, I don't, my scope of of agency and and influence is, you know, relatively um, small, kind of, you know, sort of at a national level, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty small, but, but each, each one of us, I think, can do that and have a pretty massive collective input to um, to learn something from the slowing down. So not the distancing. I think I'm hopeful we will learn a lot from the pain of the distancing. But maybe something um, really precious is there in the slowing down. Um. You know, I'm just realizing there's a question I didn't ask you that's so basic. But mm. and and I mean it what partly partly what you just said is like, you know, we we always have to we always have to realize, we always have to qualify that like some people haven't slowed down, right? That it's yeah. become harder than ever including the healthcare workers you work with. But those of us who've kind of been consigned to home, there's this there's this puzzlement at how um why are we so exhausted? And so much more exhausted when we feel like we're doing less and certainly getting less done. Like, what is that about physiologically? Yeah. Um, That's an easy one. Okay. (laughs) In part from in my own body. I'm somebody who, you know, probably hummed along at six and a half, maybe seven hours of sleep for many, many years. And I am, I've been getting like nine hours of sleep. Um, and I think it is because of this activation that we've slowed down to right the casual observer of what what your body's doing and not getting on a plane and flying here and flying not there. Not even necessarily getting dressed. Get, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But this activation is a very heavy metabolic load mm-hmm. on our system. I mean, the the requirements to actually um, be in whatever level of fight, flight, or freeze system you are in is a pretty heavy metabolic load. On right. our, and so we actually probably have a larger sleep requirement that doesn't quite match that activity level. And, um, and it's true, not everybody is slowing down. And I see uh, exhaustion actually at scale among right. the healthcare professionals that I work with. I see just a, right. the, between the cognitive, emotional, and physical lift that is demanded of them, just pure exhaustion that is not going to be remedied by a week or two vacation, which they can't even take right. to, right. A, <laughs> right. you know, to anywhere other than home. And so, yeah, I, I do spend some time thinking about that. That concerns me. So I think we're not going to be able to end on an upbeat note. <laughs> um, and that's okay. I, because I think that may also be part of like just being present to, yeah, to being honest. And, and somehow, I don't know, something I've, I feel like also one big, um, there's been so many uncoverings in this year, right? So many things um, that surfaced that were true, but they really surfaced. And and one of them is that we don't know how to mourn and grieve in this yeah. society. Uh, you know, giving the numbers of how many people have died and 
that's you know that's not that's not mourning and um and there's something in us also isn't there i mean i'm isn't there something in us physiologically that needs to do that that needs to absolutely sit with our losses and so maybe that's maybe that's the it's not upbeat but it's a step towards health step towards yeah. that that balance yeah. that we need to recover we are we are pretty conditioned to turn away um, from discomfort and suffering um, in our society. And, you know, um, it's actually a space that I feel probably the most <laughs> calm and regulated. Like, give me, you know, 10 people who are in distress. You know, if that's my day, I'd mm. much rather do that than clean my house or, mm. right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fix dinner. Um but as a society, we we are not very good at um, allowing allowing for grief, which is on its always on its own timeline, and it's unpredictable in its own right. And yeah, I, and this is a tough one because we don't have it's it's not a pinpoint experience. How do we have? I don't know what it looks like to have a, a day of remembering or right. some sort of ritual around because we're still in it is the other yeah. thing. Yeah. We're trying to grieve a trauma that is still ongoing. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't I don't have the answer to to how to do that other than one breath at a time. Because mm-hmm. it's still here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm really grateful. Oh, this was just lovely. Thank you for the chance to. I thank you too for um, you clearly. I'm not exactly even sure what you read or what you listened to that I had put out into the universe, but it's clear to me that you metabolized that <laughs> and were curious about that. And I, I couldn't. I, I just. It, it gives me. Um, it actually gives me. A lot of um, hope, just because that is sort of the message I want for mm. this is not, there's nothing wrong with you, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of my general message. This is you as a, um, your home is under attack mm. and you're just responding to that and defending that in the ways that, you know, look different for all of us, but that we know how. And so mm. I'm just really grateful for your review of things that I've put out there. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it was, um, it's been helpful for me and, and healing in some way. And it will be for others too. So we'll, we'll let you know um, when this is going to go out and all of that. You, okay. you, you know, Julie, you've got a direct line to Julie. Yes. Um, I think Chris probably needs to um, chime in here and make sure. Okay. There he is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tina. You go by Tina, right? I do. All right. Thank you so much, Krista. Blessings. I hope I get to yeah, yeah. see Maybe you we'll in, meet in one day point. in that unsocially distanced world yes. of the future. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Yeah.